We all have our favorite Shakespearean actors. But as our guest today demonstrates, it's the director who's responsible for making a play add up to more than the sum of its parts. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Adrian Noble has directed numerous productions of Shakespeare's plays, including Kenneth Branagh's breakout performance as Henry V in 1984 at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Noble served as artistic director of the RSC from 1991 to 2002. He's also directed musicals like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on London's West End, as well as operas like Verdi's Macbeth, Don Carlo, and Otello. About a decade ago, Noble wrote a book called How to Do Shakespeare. That book focused on the actor's craft with a nuts-and-bolts approach to understanding and delivering Shakespeare's lines. When the pandemic shut down theaters all over the world, Noble found himself at home with nothing to direct. That's when he started writing his latest book, How to Direct Shakespeare. The book is a no-nonsense guide for directors confronting the challenge of staging Shakespeare's texts. Noble writes that Shakespeare presents unique challenges for actors and directors, but that his plays also serve as excellent preparation for all other directing work. But for those of us who aren't directors, Noble's book has lessons that are just as applicable for anyone interested in reading Shakespeare's texts more closely. He also gives us insights into the crafts of stage design and directing that will prove immensely rewarding for anyone going back to the theater to watch live productions. Here is Adrian Noble, as interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where do you start with a new production? Uh, with the text or with secondary sources or, or checking out other versions? Um, ne never with secondary sources. Hmm. Um, and, of course, with, with the text. The thing with a, a, a Shakespeare production is that very often one has um, read it several times, often seen several productions, sometimes seen movie versions of it, which means that there's a lot of information and kind of clutter comes in when you embark upon a production. And it's quite important to kind of clear that all out and get rid of the barnacles and get back to the original architecture and shape of the piece. But that's quite a, that's, that can be very, very tricky because, you know, you encounter something like, let's say, Henry V, which was one of the very first Shakespeare plays I ever encountered. And I encountered it through the um, Laurence Olivier movie. And then I encountered it in, in a kind of a very cheap version of Shakespeare that my grandma gave me for my birthday when I was in my mid-teens with this tiny, 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 tiny writing. So when, when I came to want to direct it, my head was full of echoes from the past. But once you rid the barnacles of Henry V, the barnacles of the kind of patriotic function that Larry Olivier took uh, when he was making the movie during the middle of the Second World War, once you pull those barnacles off, when you challenge the notion that it's an anti-war play and you you think of it as a Shakespearean humanist document, you find all sorts of extraordinary colors in it. In fact, as I write in the book, the more I worked on it, my interpretation of the play actually um, 
changed during the course of it. I thought it was a play about war, but it isn't a play about partly a play about war, of course it is. But it's actually more a play about the creation of a nation and the kind of melding together of disparate classes and disparate regions into something that we can now, subsequently, we can call a nation. Mm. Um, and I found that through, in a way, through through just rooting my investigation of the play in Shakespeare's humanism. Okay, now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, which is what your book really is about, um, because uh, that was your process with that play. And you've distilled it into, into steps that directors and, and readers really can do to get deeper into Shakespeare. In the very early stages, you say, and this is all before you're, you ever cast the, the play, you ask, what is the world of the play? And you say that the answer to that will govern everything else you do. So uh, explain that process for us, because some of these things seem kind of obvious, but they have huge ramifications. Like you say, write down the obvious, the relationships, the genders of the of the casts. That's correct because because you know and I I do say to just when I, the occasions when I do have students but I always say to the actors feel free to state the obvious because it's very often the most revealing thing you can you can say about a play so I will indeed write down the, the list of characters and who's a cousin to whom who's a brother to whom who's a friend and I will look at the um, situations that he offers what are the social situations what are the religious situations and then you need to bring to bear secondary contextual n knowledge you need to think about what did religion mean to that audience and those actors and, and maybe those characters so I start from the people and then then I look at the, the situations and once I've got a handle on that, I think then one can start freeing up one's creativity. I think the the, the danger that, that a lot of directors fall into, and a lot of young directors, this might sound rather pompous here, is that is that if you like, they they start from the end result and try and work back from it. They start by saying, "Well, I, I think Henry is about is 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 about the need to ban nuclear weapons." So you start from that, and then you they kind start of work with back this to, big overarching concept. Yeah, uh, so you start with an overarching, and and you think, mm, well, then you kind of make everything fit in. And what happens is, it isn't just that you lose the humanity; you you lose the really really interesting revelations about about the, our human situation, and indeed about war, about class, about nationhood, etc. If you if you start from the concept and work inwards rather than the inside and work outwards. It's hard to start fresh, especially with Shakespeare. You have it's centuries of, of stuff, as you said, just littered in your head. Uh, and you also say, I mean, we've only gotten through the list of characters now. Then you say you should read the play and you should do it really fast in one sitting if possible. And why so fast? Because... You want to get a rough cut in your head of, of the architecture of the play so that uh, here's an example. So try reading Macbeth in one go. And it's very, very interesting. You suddenly find by the time you've actually reached for a cup of coffee, whatever, you'll find that actually Duncan's dead, Macbeth is king, and, and, and there's chaos around the world. And you're only about 25 minutes in. And so you, <laughs> and you, you get that from a straight reading. And then you find that we're we're looking at other things. We're looking at 
outside perspectives. We're looking at what it looks like from England. And then you get a, a denouement. And, and if you hold that deer, it'll give you some really fantastic tips about how to direct it. So you might say, well, actually, that the speed of events, there's a connection to how to direct it and how to act it and, and to how it happens politically, how it happens is because, you know, in, sometimes in politics, we have it in England at the moment, I think, sometimes in politics, events change at an extraordinarily fast rate. Lightning fast. And, Six weeks. Lightning fast. <laughs> and, 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 and this is what's, what happens in, in Macbeth. And, and, and there are all sorts of really useful things. So read, read it straight through. And then start breaking it down. And, and Well, um, and you have very specific advice about breaking it down. You're a fan of the elevator pitch exercise, it sounds like. And uh, you say, tell the story in three sentences. So I, why don't we try this exercise? I'm going to pretend uh, to be a director, which is a real reach. Um, uh, let's do Midsummer, say. Yes. So I'm supposed to summarize Midsummer in three sentences. Uh, so the the lovers are run away, right? That's where we start from um, Athens, looking yeah. for love. You, you can have a sub clause. The love the lovers run away to to find happiness or or to save their lives. But it's, at its simplest, the lovers run away. Okay, and uh, then fairies just make things go all haywire and topsy turvy in the forest. Yeah, just one word will do fine. Confusion. Confusion. Okay. Um, and I guess the last uh, sentence might be resolution. Reconciliation, resolution, reconciliation. And weddings. Marriage, marriage right. and weddings. So you get the kind of shape. And and my experience has taught me that that, that paradigm, that template of crisis leading to some sort of confusion in the middle, sometimes revealed through his use of a forest and then leading to reconciliation, that three-part journey he used right the way through his career. And it's I find it incredibly useful when I'm when I'm directing because it puts each scene in context and it gives you all sorts of tips as to how to direct that scene. I use the word journey a lot, not just trying to articulate the journey of a Shakespeare play, but articulate the journey of an actor inside that play, a director approaching and executing a production of that play. And so I use that template of crisis, confusion, reconciliation, that, that three-party movement. And it's, it's very relevant to many, if not all, of Shakespeare's plays. And and you see, Ben Johnson didn't do that. He didn't use that template. Marlowe didn't use that template. Decker didn't use that template. It was it was something that Shakespeare lit upon early in his career, and he kind of stuck. He stuck with it, and you'll see it. You'll see it in King Lear. He, you can see inside that his use of metaphor. So, you know, the forest is a metaphor. It's it's a real place, but it's also a metaphor. It's a real place in the sense that you can't walk in a straight line in a forest. And then you emerge from that. And that forest can be chaos. It can be a war. It can be uh, the battlefields of Agincourt. It can be the stews of Vienna in measure for measure. It can be all, all sorts of manifestations. But if you accept that template, those basic ideas, it opens up all sorts of ways of approaching design, for example. So, you know, instead of saying, I want you to um, recreate the streets of Vienna for measure for measure, okay, you can say, 
try and create chaos, an urban chaos. And that will release, I think, many more creative juices in your designer and your lighting designer than if you just say, you know, f- f- find some pictures of the Ringstrasser and stick them up <laughs> on, the, on the stage. Okay, we haven't even gotten to your to your designer yet because uh, you talk about, throughout your book, you talk about things called away days. And I don't know what an away day is, so maybe you can tell us that. But the first away day you talk about, before you're even meeting with your designer, your lighting designer, your play designer, you take an away day and you focus on dramatic energy, how Shakespeare does what he does. And you break the elements of that down into categories, language categories, apposition, metaphor, meter and pulse, line endings, wordplay, vocabulary, shape, and structure. So explain to us, what is this away day concept and why is it important? to, to I, do this I, the, then, now. The, right the, the away day concept is, is really kind of pinched from the world of commerce and business, really, that you're in KPMG or whatever, and they, they take all of their, their young associates away to a, an expensive hotel oh, a somewhere. retreat, yes. Yeah, it's a retreat. So these are three chapters in the book. They're three explorations of material knowledge that you need to have digested, or it's helpful if you have digested it. The first one, I subtitle it, how does he do it? How does he create his effects? It's not, it's no good saying, oh, it's poetic, it's concentrated, etc. That isn't actually, it's it's much more what one can analyze quite precisely how, how he does it. And I, and through those seven headings that you just articulated, one can work out how he creates his effects, not just in terms of dramatic effects, but how he empowers the actor. That's a, probably a better way of putting it, because think of your actor standing on the on the stage or particularly on the globe stage with a sort of a possibly a rowdy audience that his principal tool was language. Nowadays, we can help him. We can take the, take the lights down on the audience. We can put the actor in a single spotlight. We can amplify him if we want to. Video screens, all sorts of ways. Then, basically, he had the language. And through Shakespeare's language, the actor is empowered. Not, Not only that, all the other resonances of meaning, of context flow from the how does he do it. Okay, this Um, is really good because you say take a highlighter and you mark up your page, rhymes, alliterations, assonances, anything that's colorful or quirky that appeals to you. This is all in preparation, it seems like, your retreat here as a director to working with your actors, to getting on this very, very, very nuts and bolts level of the language. That's correct. I mean, the first lesson in terms of how he does it is actually... I call it apposition, which is the, the, the juxtaposition of word on word, idea on idea, sentence on sentence. And it creates a dynamic, uh, you know, to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and so opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more. Now, that's that's. That's apposition. It creates energy. It creates a dialectic. And then within that, it's muscular. It's muscular. So the moment you approach, for example, there you are, to be or not to be, the famous Hamlet monologue, as as soon as you start exploring the 
energy of it, exploring the positions, the antitheses, it becomes muscular. And and so when certainly when I did it with Kenneth Branagh, the the whole notion of Hamlet as this rather lethargic sort of um, (laughs) lazy chap, gently thinking about the possibility of dying. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. It's dynamic. And then within that frame, you can then explore the metaphor. You can explore alliteration, explore all the other things that you want to do. But you start with the dynamic. Interesting. And then you say you start talking to your designer finally. And yeah, you write that the designer is the first person that you trust to try out your ideas. So uh, how do you start with this key collaborator? I invariably start by reading the play. Um, out loud? Taking alternate, out loud, out loud, taking mm-hmm. alternate speeches. And, you know, I'm not an actor. The designers aren't, aren't actors, so we don't read it very well. But then... I will start feeding in some of my thoughts and getting back some of his or her thoughts. And then we will start quite early on creating a visual vocabulary. So just odd images start coming to mind. It isn't Shakespeare, but I I quote in the book an an example. I was doing Alcina at the Staatsoper in Vienna. And the first, practically the first image we came up with was this huge hot air balloon landing inside an 18th century salon and it seemed somehow it echoed with the with the opera somehow it encaptured the artifice somehow it captured the period and we just stuck it on the wall and it sat on the wall and we kept looking back on it for weeks <laughs> so and weeks so this is like a weeks, mood actually. board for you yeah it's a mood board it's exactly yeah. right and all sorts of things can go up there and no, nobody sees it you also say make a 3d model it's complete with stick, um, little yeah. stick scale figures of the actors in it. I, I, I find that absolutely vital, I have to say. I, I think 3D, I don't think 2D. And as soon as you put a little, a little cardboard person, you, just, you can start relating that to the play. So you play. You play with your stick figures. Yeah. You play with your stick figures and you start playing quite specifically with space. So the floor, let's, let's think about the floor. So it's a white floor because they're going in its winter time or it's a green, becomes a green floor. Can I have two floors? That's rather expensive, isn't it? How do I, how do, I do that? Or maybe it's just wooden planks. Do I have walls? Am I working in the round? In which case everything's kind of up for grabs in a rather different way. I want to ask you about directing Kenneth Branagh. Uh, because he had his breakthrough role of Henry V when he was just 23 with you. And I was thinking about something else uh, that you say about working with actors in England, that there's such a tradition of Shakespearean acting that your metaphor for it is it's like a relay race. Each great actor Mm. from Richard Burbage to, say, uh, Ian McKellen or Kenneth Branagh passes the baton on. So my question about Brana is, did he just spring out of university, just fully formed with his Shakespearean thinking cap already on as if he had all the answers? Or what was it like to collaborate with him? Well, I think the answer is yes, he did just spring out with all this. I think he did. I can tell you exactly how it happened. It was one of those occasions when I had decided that I wanted to direct the play. So I was then looking for an actor, and and I I got it down to two actors, both of whom are leading actors, both of whom are very, very famous. They weren't then, by the way. They are are now. And one actor came in, and we sat in the room and went through it, and it was 
you know, you stopped and started, and it was this was in the, the director's office at, at the Barbican, London. And then Ken came in, it was number two, and Ken said, I couldn't do it on the stage, could I? Could we work on the stage? I said, I don't know, I'll ring down. So I rang down the prompt call and they said, yeah, we're clear. Um, so we went down to the stage and I went down to the stalls. And he did great big, <laughs> big bits of Henry V. He just did it. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Crikey. Here's your you play. Know, <laughs> you know, and so it was, it was completely clear that he should play Henry V because he had that kind of, um, he, had, he had kind of bags of technique he had bags of confidence and he had bags of daring, really. He had the kind of confidence of youth. And the extraordinary thing was, Barbara, but he kept it. So you go up to him during the after for the first preview and he'd be sitting in there chatting to the dress or chatting to another actor. I said, how are you feeling, Ken? He said, oh, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> so, not a sign of nerves or there didn't seem to be a sign of nerves at all. And he just ate it up. Huh. You got to hate him sometimes, I imagine. <laughs> okay, so finally we're in rehearsals here. <laughs> and and your mm. your uh, story is has really anticipated my next question, which is how do you get your cast to enter the world of the play as you envision it and and have with a feeling of unity because I've seen so many productions with, say, famous Shakespearean actors or, or a number of them maybe and it can seem like all or some of those cast members are acting in different plays. Yes, that can be a problem. It's not always a huge problem. I think one of the kind of great pluses about, certainly in the UK, is that there's a sort of a, you can find yourself with what could loosely be called an ensemble very quickly, actually. Just parenthetically, I'll tell you a little little story. That, that I, the first time I directed a play in France, in Paris, it was enabled for me by Peter Brook. And I, I was in Paris and before rehearsals. He said, I've got, I'll, I'll give you some advice. I said, oh, great. So I thought, oh, marvelous. What's he going to tell Advice me? from Peter Brook. Absolutely. He said, Invaluable. first thing, and it's very important, you must ask for a lot of money. I said, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. All right. Fine. Good advice. Good advice. And secondly, he said, you, you will need a, a long rehearsal period. Um, now, I did the first, but not the second. And I didn't get along. Right? I couldn't get the time out of England. And I realized about four-fifths of the way through the rehearsals why. And the reason was that the actors I had that came from at least three quite different traditions. I mean, really, really different traditions of acting. One came with the beautiful voice. One came from a much more mimetic sort of style of physical theater. And one was very kind of film-like and introverted. And I couldn't get them all in the same show because their, what they call the, their formation, their training was profoundly different. Mm. Whereas in England, it's quite easy, actually. And I found the same in the States, actually, and in Canada, quite easy to get everybody in the same room, so to speak. But there are ways of working towards that and I describe a number of them in the book that you just you got to start work I always start try and work I find it quite difficult to sit down I hate sitting down for a whole week I get really bored so we will we'll probably read the play but I'll get up almost immediately and we'll do exercises just moving around exercises and then we'll stop and we'll talk about the one or two things yeah. about the play and you have exercises that go with all of that correspond to these things one is a, yeah. I think you do group sculptures I do group sculptures. I do mm -hmm. 
I do kind of, you know, sometimes I do kind of status games. There are thousands of those. There are. Available. And they usually are called improv, but you say you never use the word improv. No, I tell you why, because older actors really kind of fight shy of it. They they hate, they hate, um, not all of them, but many older actors find the word quite threatening and the process quite threatening because they say to me sometimes, listen, X or Y are brilliant at improvising, but I'm a, I'm a much better actor than they are. I can do Shakespeare's <laughs> verse much better than them. So what does it prove? Apart from the fact that I'm rubbish at improvising and they're good at improvising, what does it prove? And you want to say, but that isn't actually, but you shouldn't put them in that position. That they that shouldn't that, that conversation should never occur. It really does sound like your job as a director is 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 half technique and half um therapy. No, no, that's that's not really the case. I mean, occasionally one has to be kind of dad, you know, because the very process of acting is can be and usually is a process of self-revelation of making yourself open arguably vulnerable you know if you if you kind of follow the dionysiac thesis that you become possessed by a character you will become possessed by the attributes of that character now that that interplays with your own psyche and your own your own emotions and so you're in a vulnerable place as an actor and 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 you've got to You've got to understand that as a director, and you've got to respect it. Have you ever gotten to previews after all of this work and realized something is way off? Yes, I have. One I write about in the book with, with Macbeth, where, where Jonathan Price created this extraordinary vortex of concentration and danger in rehearsals, looked at the ground for most of the time. We took it into the main stage at Stratford. He did the same thing. And the audience, it didn't penetrate to the audience. We all sat there watching it, but we weren't involved in it. Because he was looking at we, the ground? Yeah, it ah. was It was kind of very, very simple. And we both lived up in Dover's Hill, up but near Stratford at the time. We were driving home. And I said to him, listen, you've got to look up. He said, what do you mean? I said, look at the audience. He said, yeah, that's it. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And it was fine. <laughs> we were there. Um. I want to ask you, what are you working on now? I'm in a two or three days' time. I'm off to Venice to direct Falstaff, the Verdi opera Falstaff at La, at La Fenice in Venice. But you haven't started yet. But you have. So are you blank oh, slating? Yeah, yeah. I've got... Blank slating right now, or where are you? With no, it? I've got. I'm. 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 I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <laughs> the thing is, you see, because you you don't get that much time um, in in opera, and you have to kind of know what you're doing. Sure. Um, particularly don't get much time with choruses because choruses are very, very, very expensive. You know, if you ha- call people for an hour, you're calling 80 people. At the Metropolitan Opera, you're calling you're calling 110 people for an hour. Now, that think of that, that's, that's a lot of overtime, you know, if you if you got to run over. So you, you've got to husband your time very carefully. I wish you the best with it. And I want to thank you so much for talking today. It's just been a delight. Well, a delight for me as well to revisit all those things that I wrote during lockdown, actually. I, I wrote the book during lockdown. What a great lockdown exercise, and I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you. Adrian Noble's new book is called How to Direct Shakespeare, and it's out now. His previous book is called How to Do Shakespeare. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. 
Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at Three Seas Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. And consider telling a friend about the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.